0: In light of the fact thanks will in light of the fact that uh, we will be celebrating the 500th anniversary next month, we decided in Sunday school to do a, uh, a series on the Reformation. and this is something that never uh, becomes um, it's always applicable. We always need to understand the roots and the foundations of our faith. And so the way we decided to set this up was uh, Pastor Ron had asked me if I would do two weeks to give you a history of the Reformation. Now, think about this, folks. Two weeks, two hours to do a history of the Reformation. This is like saying, teach on the person and work of Christ, and I'm giving you 15 minutes, okay? <laughs> um, it's almost overwhelming. It's kind of paralyzing because there, are, I have tomes on the Reformation. This was one class in church history that I took in seminary that took us almost a year to get through just the Reformation. So... Um, I'm overloaded with this um, on on how to approach this and what makes this difficult of course is that when we talk about the history of the Protestant Reformation we're not just talking about one event this isn't like 9-11 what we're talking about is an event that culminated hundreds of years before Martin Luther was even on the scene we're talking about an event that that affected all of Western Europe and most of the known world we're talking about an event where you have pre-reformers, reformers, post-reformers who were incredibly important in this movement that we call the Reformation. And so this is not something that you can just tie together in a neat little bundle and, uh, and kind of go through it as though uh, it, it's, it's just this concise historical event. And as I thought about that, I thought, <coughs> when we talk about history, Why do we study history? You know, a lot of people think, well, history is nice because, you know, history gives us a lot of facts. It kind of gives us a chronological timetable of when things happen. It kind of gives us a sense of major events and everything that goes on. And those things are true. But I want to suggest to you that those are very much secondary issues when it comes to why we need to study history. And especially as we apply this to why we would study the history of the Reformation. And the reason for that is because because movements and history has consequences, all right? It isn't just about knowing facts and knowing dates. It's about what goes on in the hearts of men, how history affects where we are today, who we are today, why we believe what we believe today. So history is incredibly important for us to understand. It's not just some sterile study. It helps us to move through the minds and hearts of men that God has touched throughout the ages, to see where the Lord has brought us to this very hour. And I want to suggest to you that the effects of the Reformation are still being felt very, very heavily today. So the Reformation is not over. Um, so with that in mind, let's pray. That's just my little uh, my little talk here, you know. And we'll pray, and then we'll get into our uh, our time today, and we'll kind of go through what we're going to go through. All right? So let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for this morning that you've given us. I thank you for our church. Lord, that you have brought us together as your saints, as those called from before the foundation of the world. And Lord, we realize that as your elect, that we play a very important role in church history. Lord, not just to record events in our lives and circumstances, but to see the very hand of God moving, through the people that you call to yourself and to see how those events impact our theology and our our sense of uh, worth before you. And so I pray, Lord, as we begin this study of the Reformation that you will bless our time. I pray that as we understand the sequence of events, we'll see your hand as it moved through history during this incredible time. And, Lord, that you will... Again, be honored and blessed through our study. And we pray that in Christ's name. Amen. To kind of give you just an overview of what we're going to do, I'm going to try to finish in two weeks a history of the Reformation. I I don't know that I'm going to do this, but I'll do my best. Um, And after we do this, what we're going to do is, on each one of the successive weeks, um, we have decided to take... uh, Prominent figures in the Reformation and do like biographies on each one of those men. So it may be John Huss It may be Zwingli uh, It may be Calvin um, Luther of course so uh, this is how we're going to do it and um, And what I've done and I'd like you to look at your kind of your syllabus and you can write all over this It's yours. Uh, I obviously didn't give you much room, but you can add paper if you'd like but What we're going to do is basically I want to start by giving us an introduction to the Protestant Reformation and we're going to talk again about the church and state, indulgences, faith alone, scripture alone. As we go through, I want you to keep in mind that the five solas of the Reformation become incredibly important and we're going to be talking about that in more detail hopefully next week. Um, And then we're going to talk about the Counter-Reformation, the uh, Catholic response, which occurred at the Council of Trent in 1545. So I want to give just kind of a basic, general, elementary overview of the Reformation. I'm just going to kind of give like a, just a very general overview. And then in in number two there, um, I want to specifically key in on Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation. We're going to talk a little bit about some of the terms we need to understand how he saw justification, how he challenged indulgences, of course, the 95 Theses, which is what he's well known for, the response of the church, and then the growing protest that occurred towards this Reformation in those early days. But then how the Reformation spread throughout all of Europe, the 30-year war and peace of Westphalia, very important time in history, a lot of things occurred there. And then in part three through part nine, I want to look at some specific areas of the Reformation um, specifically that I think will be important or key to us to understand some of the Roman Catholic errors. I want to look at those in, in detail because these errors still exist today and I think we should have a good apologetic when it comes to Roman Catholicism and when it comes to understanding what is the difference between their theological doctrine at the core and and what we would espouse. We're going to see generally a Reformation timeline. We're going to talk a little bit about Reformation leaders, and hopefully that will whet your appetite for a more advanced study of each one of these men as we move along. We're going to talk about the seven sacraments of grace in Roman Catholicism, and this was something that Luther... Uh, especially against Erasmus, really countered was these seven sacraments of grace. And we need to understand how the Catholic Church looks at grace. Because the way they see grace is very different than the way we see grace. We need to understand that. And then we want to get a little more in detail into Luther's story, uh, sola fide, by faith alone. This was something that was huge with Luther. Luther the Council of Trent and the Mass that was instituted there, and we're going to talk there about Solus Christus, uh, faith in Christ alone, solus meaning alone. And then lastly, we're going to look at the Reformation and Soli Deo Gloria. So we're going to look at some of these aspects of the five solas because they tie so heavily into the Reformation. They are so important for that particular time. So... uh, That is kind of how we're going to do this and um, I'm a little early on my outline but if you look on the second page you'll notice that we have some definitions I made a page for you that explained definitions and these would be uh, important for you to get familiar with because they are things that you'll hear often in any kind of lecture on the Reformation especially I want you to notice Penance there, acts of contrition or punishments that one endures or performs to show regret. The idea of purgatory, which is a Catholic um, um, imagination, really. Mm-hmm. Um, indulgences, uh, this was really what sparked the Reformation in Luther's mind. It was his, his uh, um, uh, fight against this idea of indulgences that was a main issue Uh, His 95 Theses. Then notice the papal bull. When we talk about a papal bull, um, we're talking about an official letter of instruction issued by the Pope concerning a particular subject. And we're going to talk about the fact that Pope Leo X issued a papal bull against Luther to have him killed. And it was by God's grace that he was kidnapped and wasn't killed. But a papal bull is simply an edict by the Pope uh, that instructs... uh, the church concerning issues. And then notice down where we talk about a diet, uh, we're not talking about like an eating diet, okay? And when I first heard this like the diet of worms I thought no wonder they were so crabby. Who'd want to eat worms, you know? When we talk about a diet, we're, we're talking to a religious legislator or a council that is held, so the diet of worms would be a council that was held in Worms, Germany. So we're talking about a legislative branch that meets uh, we're going to learn about the Diet of Augsburg. That was another legislature that met. So, just so you're kind of familiar with terms, and if I use a term, hopefully it'll be on here. If I use a term that you're not familiar with, just raise your hand, and we'll try to explain it. All right. All right. So let's um, let's kind of get into this. And like I said, I want to start by just giving you a very short um, overview. This is going to be. Very general, um, but it's going to... And then we're going to go back and we're going to look at this in a little more detail. If we're going to understand the Protestant Reformation movement, we need to go back in history to the, to the very early 16th century uh, when during that time in the late 1400s, the early 1500s, there was really only one church in existence. Um, and it was the Roman Catholic Church. Um, it was really a church that dominated and controlled all of Western Europe. Um, and it was lead- under the leadership of the Pope in Rome. So the Pope had absolute authority. The church back then, unlike today, was the ultimate authority. Uh, the church in those days could have people put to death without any fear of reprisal. The Pope wielded almost absolute power. And the, the church was, as you can imagine, very corrupt. Um, but if we go back again to, this, to the year of 1500, we see that the church again was very powerful both politically and spiritually. Uh, it ruled over a very large area, a significant territory in Italy especially. And in Italy, these territories were divided into what they called papal states. So it's kind of like the United States, but instead of our country, it would be papal states, states that were under... The control of the Pope. Um, But there were other political forces that were at work in Europe at that time. There was what we know as the Holy Roman Empire, which was made up of largely German speaking regions, and they were ruled by princes and dukes and electors. So in Germany, you had this Holy Roman Empire, you had different uh, areas of of Germany, where princes and dukes and these what they call the electors ruled. This reminds me a lot of modern-day China. You know, China today, although we think of it as communist, right, and, and it is, but if you go to China, you'll find that China is made up of many, many different provinces. I mean, there are many provinces, and what I found very interesting when I was in China was that the arm of the communist government is not as, is, it's not equal in every province. Uh, for example, there are provinces in China where people get together for Bible studies. They get very little, they don't get bothered. They really don't get, you know, much government interference at all. Things are fairly open. There are other provinces in China where it is brutal and very, very controlling and very dangerous. So, so this is kind of the situation that you had there. The Pope was in charge, but you had these other forces um, that were came into play, Um, and the Italian city-states England as well as France and Spain also were included in this and so you had powers at work that were a little divergent from the Pope's rule but still uh, didn't have the freedom that they desired when the Reformation started in earnest it was these groups that initially began to push back against the Roman Catholic Church And their desire was to weaken the power of the papacy. They wanted to weaken the pope's control. Uh, They wanted to increase their own power in relation to the church in Rome and certainly in other areas. And so we see well before Luther came on the scene, there were other movements that started. And and, uh, two of the men that um, really were involved in this were uh, John Huss, and uh, and John Wycliffe, and so they were pre-reformers, and their work in pushing back against the Catholic Church was quite significant. Now, we're not going to get into that now, because those are probably two guys that we're going to be talking about in earnest as we move on through our study of the Reformation. So, But know that the Reformation started long before Luther. Luther was not the initial catalyst, although Luther was considered the major catalyst when it came to Uh, the actual um, explosion of this reformation. So, very significant, but he wasn't the instigator of this necessarily. Now, I want you to keep in mind, too, that for some time, the church had been seen as an institution plagued by internal power structures. The Catholic Church was very corrupt. Um, At one point in the late 1300s and the early 1400s, the church was ruled by three popes at the same time. So it was uh, very, very corrupt. There was a real power-hungry uh, struggle going on there. Popes and cardinals lived more like kings than spiritual leaders. I mean, they not only ruled but they lived well. They exploited the people, um, and this occurred all the way from about uh, 1000 A.D. Now, does anybody know what 1000 A.D. is typically known as in history? What do we we call those? The what? The Dark Ages. And why do we call them the Dark Ages? Because the sun didn't shine? Why do we call that the Dark Ages? Anybody want to take a guess at that? No truth. No truth. truth. Why was there no truth? That's right, but explain why. Why why was that? Because the Bible was not in the hands of the People. people, right? It was the papacy that would tell the people what they should believe, and it was against the law. What could happen if they caught you with the Bible? They could kill you. Seriously? That's how serious it was in the Dark Ages. It was against the law, it was prohibited, because the Pope was the divine vicar, he was the only one that could interpret Scripture along with the priests, and anyone other than then papal authority trying to interpret the Bible was considered heresy and you could be tried as a heretic and as a rabble-rouser if you had the Bible in your hands. Thus, the Dark Ages, because there was spiritual darkness. The people did not have the Word of God. And, of course, that's a good way to keep people in ignorance, isn't it? Have you ever heard pastors today say, don't do, you know, you just do as I say. I'm the authority and don't worry about it. You just do what I tell you. Anybody ever have that? I've had pastors tell me that. Abusive pastors tell me that. You know what? That ought to be a red flag about the size of the Grand Canyon, right? Um, we should be driving this book into the hands of our people, not keeping it from them. So very important for us to understand. Now, in that time, in the 1300s and the 1400s, popes claimed temporal, political, as well as spiritual power, and they commanded armies. I mean, you have to understand the total control that they had. They made political alliances, they even waged war. Um, and um, they were guilty of uh, simony, and some of you may not be familiar with that term, but simony describes the selling of church offices. In other words, to make a little cash, They would literally sell church offices. So if I said, hey, Dan, how would you like to be a deacon? Dan would say, oh, man, that'd be great. What an honor. Hey, 500 bucks, I'll get you right in there. You know, okay, would you pay it? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So that was going on all the time. And then we had also nepotism, which, of course, is favoritism based upon family relationships. So if you were part of the royal family of the papal hierarchy, chances are you would have a pretty good position once you grew up, so there was uh, w- wickedness was rampant, um, and this really um, translated into the Catholic Church literally having no time to care for the souls of the people. This was not a time during this papal rule that the that the souls of the people were ministered to. This was really more of a business. This was more of an organizational machine. It was a political machine it was a money-making machine but the catholic church cared very little about the common man the corruption of the church was well known but most people were too afraid really to do anything about it now as i said we have two pre-reformers that were very important in history which were john Wycliffe and john huss and they began doing significant work but with these two pre-reformers none of them got to the point where they successfully challenged the church at that point. Although they started, they started a little fire and there was some smoke that came out of that. But that smoke needed to be blown on to really start a fire. And really that started with Luther. But we don't want to discount these great men of God, Hus being burned at the stake as a heretic. Uh, and we'll get into that when we talk about him and Wycliffe as well. And they challenged the church, but it really wasn't until Martin Luther came on the scene in the early 1500s that the Reformation really began to gain momentum. Okay, any questions so far? (laughs) How do you spell Huss? H-U-S. I love a name like that, real simple, three letters, Huss. H-U-S. I don't think it's two S's, is it? I think it's one s. And if you really want to know, it would be Johann Huss, but I call him John. You know, oh, so. no. <laughs> yeah. Michael, Mike, Mikey, you know. So Martin Luther, let's just talk a minute about him. Now, if we have time today, we're going to get into Martin Luther a little more uh, in detail. But he was a German monk. He was a professor of theology at the University of Wittenberg. And it was really Luther that sparked the Reformation in 1517, and you'll remember that at least according to tradition, he posted his 95 theses on the door of the castle church at Wittenberg. Now, I don't want to break anybody's bubble, but historically, we don't really know if he put them on the door. Um, There are many who said that he just sent a letter to the papacy. And the interesting thing about Luther, and we'll talk more about this, is when he Does anybody know why he posted these 95 theses on the door or sent the letter? He was reading the book of Romans. He was reading the book of Romans, and he was protesting the church. But what what was Luther's motivation for doing that? Does anybody know? He wanted to start a debate. Exactly. He wanted to start a debate. Luther's idea was, I'm going to post these theses just to start a debate. Now... It's very possible that he did put them on the door at Wittenberg because this was a way that in those days you often communicated with the church. You would just put a little note or a bulletin on the door and then that's how information would be transferred back and forth. So when Luther wrote these 95 theses, his goal was to start a debate with the Catholic church. He wanted to just get into a debate with them. And of course, it didn't. That's not what happened. God used that and basically... That just caused an explosion within the Catholic Church and that really started the significant movement of the Reformation. And we'll get into that more, but I find it interesting that, you know, we often think that Luther went to that door and said, you know what, I'm starting the Reformation and I'm, I'm going I'm to nail the Catholic Church. I'll be famous throughout all history. And, you know, he just put him up there because he wanted to debate the church. He said, look, I'm not, I'm not good with this. What you're teaching is wrong. And uh, And that debate kind of happened at the Diet of Worms, and we'll talk a little bit about that when we get there, but very interesting um, motivation, and so I want you to understand what Luther's, Luther's motivation was. The primary problem, there were many problems that Luther had, the primary problem was really the sale of indulgences. This was something that Luther saw as completely heretical, completely outside of the Word of God, and... They were based, of course, on Luther's understanding with church doctrine, and as he came to understand justification by faith alone, and he realized that, look, grace cannot be bought and sold. You, you cannot earn favor with God through, through penance of any kind. And, and so this was a big issue with Luther, and he had deep concerns about this doctrine And so he started this movement, which came to be known as Protestantism. Protestant, notice, contains the word what? Protest, Protest, right? So it contains the word protest, and then Reformation contains the word Reform. reform, right? So this was an effort, at least at first, to protest some of the practices of the Catholic Church, and then to reform the Church, to bring the Church and put it in line with what the scriptures really taught. Now let me talk a little bit about indulgences and by the way, if any of you have questions or you want to make comments, I'm glad to hear them along the way. Go ahead, Jeremy. At this point in history was the Catholic Church, because right now there's like lots of variations the Catholic Church the only church. Well back during those days it was pretty much the only church, okay. yeah, And there wasn't anything like was known as Protestantism, although there were movements that were starting to arise. But at that time, in the, from the 1300s to the early 1500s, it was more scattered. It was, there was no consistent um, movement against or apart from the Catholic Church, although the people were very much um, resentful of the Catholic Church because of their uh, exploitation and lack of care. But let's, good question, let's talk about indulgences for a minute. And again, this is going to be important for us to understand because I think it's going to give you a greater sense and feeling for what these men accomplished. When we get to actual uh, to the study of these great men who were so key in the Reformation, this is going to give you a better picture, I think, of just what they accomplished. But the sale of indulgences was a practice where the church acknowledged a donation or other charitable work with a piece of paper, and this piece piece of paper would be called an indulgence. And this indulgence, according to Catholicism, certified that your soul would enter heaven more quickly by reducing your time in purgatory. Now what is purgatory? What did we say purgatory was? It's in your little chart there, but what what is purgatory? What is the Catholic belief about purgatory? Anybody wanna answer that? Adorable. As a former Roman Catholic Okay. <laughs> I can speak on that. It's uh it's not hell, but it's an intermediate state where you can atone for your sins okay. with the possibility of entering heaven. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of a way station. So when you die, if you haven't had all of your sins paid for, you go to this place called purgatory, and and either through the prayers of the saints for you or through these indulgences where it's paid for you, you can get out of purgatory and... And God will say, hey, that's enough, uh, paid in full. And then you get advanced from purgatory into into glory. Now, the idea is this. If you have committed no serious sins uh, that guaranteed your place in hell, and remember in the Catholic Church, and I don't want to talk too much about this, the Catholic Church categorizes sin typically in two categories, venial sins and mortal sins. What's the difference? Mortal sin, you would definitely go to hell. And a venial sin is then, what? Purgatory. Pardon me? Purgatory. Purgatory, right. It's, it's, it's not something that's going to condemn you to hell, but it may be something that we have to pray you out or, in, or bring up indulgences to get you out of there. Um, and maybe you died before you repented, and so your soul went to purgatory. And uh, as you go to this way station, you finish atoning for your sins before you are allowed to enter heaven. Now, how did this sale of indulgences really become uh, toxic? Well, uh, during uh, the early 1500s, the Roman Catholic Church was ruled by a pope, Leo X. And um, this is really freaky, because have any of you ever been to St. Basilica's uh, Cathedral in, in, in Italy? Anybody ever been there? Okay, I've been there. And it's really freaky in there. Um, Probably one of the coolest architectural buildings. You know, you could parasail from the top of this thing. This is so high. From the inside of the building, you could literally parasail down. Anyway, that has nothing to do with anything. <laughs> I just thought I'd throw that in there. Um, but in in uh, St. Peter's Church, they have the popes laid out in um, transparent coffins. You can actually see these guys like laying there, uh, which is pretty pretty weird. <laughs> you know, when you consider that. They've been laying there for a long time. Um, And I don't remember seeing Pope Leo X. He might have been in there. But Pope Leo X began granting indulgences. And the reason was is that back then he wanted to raise money for the rebuilding of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. So he desired to have the church rebuilt. So he started to grant these things. And he... um, He employed a man, and we're going to talk more about him, by the name of Johann Tetzel, very important name. Uh, And this man was not far from Wittenberg, where Luther was the professor of theology there. And so Tetzel went around, and he was the one that represented the pope, and he began to sell these indulgences. And the idea was to raise enough money to rebuild St. Peter's Basilica. And um, Luther was concerned about the way... Tetzel was saying people get to heaven, that it was somehow connected with this financial transaction and that man could uh, steer this. Um, But again, this was a primary issue that Luther had, but it wasn't the only disagreement that Luther had with the institution of the church. So we're going to talk more about indulgences. You know, this is kind of like a general overview now, and we're going to talk a little more as we get into this. One of the primary concerns that Martin Luther had was this idea of salvation by faith alone. Okay, sola fide. Uh, One of the five solas of the Reformation. And uh, again, these five solas are just so intertwined. You really can't have one without the other, can you? Like you can't be a a four-point sola guy, right? Is that right? You you gotta be like a five-point sola guy or girl. You can't be like... Well, I believe in Sola Fide, but Solus Christus, no, you know. But he was concerned. Um, Martin Luther had had a spiritual crisis when he was a monk. We'll talk more about that. But the crisis in a nutshell that Martin Luther had was this, that he discerned that no matter how good that he tried to be, and let me tell you, Martin Luther went to the nth degree to be as pious on this earth as any man could be. We'll get into this, but this was not a guy who just... Uh, made sure he was in church every day on Sunday. This guy did things that were off the charts. But he discerned that no matter how good he had tried to be, no matter how hard that he tried to stay away from sin, he still found himself having sinful thoughts, and he still found himself doing sinful deeds. And this haunted Luther. This was something he was obsessed about, and he said, you know, no matter how hard I try, I, I, can't, I can't seem to get it where I'm, I'm right before God. He was fearful that no matter how many good works he did, no matter what he did to try to think right, he could never do enough to earn his place in heaven. Now, why is that important? Because you have to remember that according to the Catholic Church, doing good works, for example, and we're going to see this, even commissioning works of art for the church helped to gain you a spot in heaven so good works remember were very much a part of the catholic church justification in the catholic church came by faith and by works right and that was very much taught and still is today by the way so this was a profound recognition of the inescapable sinfulness of the human condition and luther came to the point where he said look I I come to this conclusion and I can't come to any other conclusion that, that, that we are in a sinful state and we are unable to escape this in any way on our own. That was a profound moment in Luther's life. That was a God thing. Amen? And after all, no matter how kind or good we try to be, we find ourselves having thoughts which are unkind, sometimes worse. And so Luther found a way out of this problem when he read in the book of Romans, as our dear brother just mentioned. And one of his key verses that sparked the Reformation, Romans 1.17, Can somebody read that? This stuck in Luther's mind. Romans 1.17, what does it say? The just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. And I have no doubt that Luther meditated upon this verse for thousands of hours. The just shall live by faith. And Luther understood this to mean that those who go to heaven, the just, will get there by what? Faith alone. Not by doing good works. In other words, God's grace is something freely given to human beings. It's not something that we can earn And yet for the Catholic Church, on the other hand, human beings, through good works, had some agency in their salvation. So you see that not only did Martin Luther really correctly understand the doctrine of justification, but he also understood that man had no part to play in his salvation. So this was a defining moment in Martin Luther's life. Now again, when we get into Martin Luther, we're going to talk about this a little more, but I just kind of want to give you an overview so you have a general idea of what's going on here. Luther was also concerned about solus scripturis, uh, scripture alone. Um, and Luther and the other reformers turned to the Bible as the only reliable source of instruction. This is another incredible insight that Luther brought. Um, the teachings of the church... Um, were very much uh, had addendums that they considered um, inspired. What were some of the things that the Roman Catholic Church might have added to the scripture? Anybody want to? What's the most obvious? The what? The, the what? The the I'm sorry? The okay, any kind of, a, yeah, any kind of papal bull. Anything that, that, that the pope wrote was considered inspired because he was considered to be in direct line of the apostles. So that would be true. What else? What do they add to their Bible? The Apocrypha, Apocrypha right? There are many writings in Roman Catholicism that are addendums to the Word of God. And so Luther began to turn to the Bible as the only reliable source, which absolutely opposed the teachings of the church at that time. And one of the most significant advancements in technology was not a cell phone back then, by the way. Just think if Luther had had a cell phone. Just think how fast the Reformation would have gotten started with a cell phone. Hey, Kel, how you doing? You know, no. <laughs> um, it, was, it was the invention of the printing press in the middle 15th century. The printing press was invented by Gutenberg in Mainz, Germany. And this had a profound impact on the way that the Reformation was spread because they were able to translate the Bible... Into the vernacular, which is literally another way to say the common languages of people, and the Bible, because of the printing press at this time, was translated into French, Italian, German, and English. so you see that the invention of the printing press was an incredible resource that God used mightily to to really in, to uh, spark the reformation um, and so it became possible for those who could learn to read directly from the Bible without having to rely on a priest. Can you imagine the impact of this? That people for centuries had no Bible, and all of a sudden the Bible is getting translated in all these languages and they can read it for themselves. And we know the Word of God is like a lion once you let it go. Go ahead, repeat that. It does its work, right? Let the lion loose, and there you go. And so people were reading the Word of God printing press, they were, they were printing this and they were reading the word of God. I know that from your email. I always read that too. I read that before I read what you're telling me. I'm sorry. You know, like, I always go down and read that and then, oh yeah, Ron has a message here. I gotta read so again, the people did not have to rely upon a priest, other church officials. Um, now before this time, remember, the Bible was pretty much only available in Latin. Uh, the ancient language of Rome, and it was spoken primarily by the clergy. And there are still traditional churches today that have mass in Latin. I remember as a kid when my grandfather was Catholic and he took me to St. Michael's Catholic Church in Chicago, and I didn't grow up in a Christian home, and I remember walking into this place and it just freaked me out because it was so big and you go, hello, 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 you know, it was just this big. And I thought, man, what are these people doing here, you know? and then they were saying all this in Latin, and I remember asking my grandfather, you know, what are they saying? You know, and he just was like, eh, just don't worry about it. And then they would make the sign of the cross, and and I would say, why does why do we do that? And he goes, just do it, you know. So I, it was just kind of a very uh, weird experience for me. Uh, but Latin was uh, the language of the Bible back then. The priests pretty much were the only ones that were allowed to translate. Um, And before the printing press books were handmade, they were extremely expensive. But again, the invention of the printing press and the translation of the Bible into many languages meant for the first time in history, the Bible was available to those who were outside of the church. And that is a very key issue. And now a direct relationship to God, unmediated by the institution of the Catholic Church, was possible. I have no doubt that without the invention of the printing press, the Reformation might have been severely handicapped. Of course, we know this was all God's providence. So, you know, obviously this was the Lord's will for this. So when Luther, when other reformers then looked to the words of the Bible, um, and there were efforts at approving the accuracy of these translations, uh, they began to look at the Greek manuscripts to accurately translate they found that many of the practices and teachings of the church and about how we achieve salvation didn't match the teaching of Christ. And isn't this one of the most magnificent things about the Word of God? You know, it, it was like um, years ago when I, I was, I grew up with an Arminian background. Any of you have that? I, I grew up very Arminian. And, you know, I was taught that, and uh, before I was really proficient in the Word of God, I just assumed, well, that must be right, because, you know, all these pastors are telling me that, so it has to be right. And uh, when I got into uh, Bible college and seminary and I began to learn Greek and I began to look in Romans 8 and I'm looking that we're called and we're justified and we're glorified and I'm seeing that as in the in the indicative and I'm seeing that, that is, that's a, an already happened thing, but I've been taught that we have something to play in our salvation. And it was the word of God that really convinced me, wait a minute, what I've been taught and what the Bible says is they're not squaring, And this is what was happening all over Europe. People were reading the Word of God and they were saying, Wait a minute here. Wait a minute here. That's not what this says. This is not what the Word of God teaches. Um, and this extended to many of the sacraments that the Catholic Church, including Holy Communion, known as the Eucharist. And according to the Catholic Church, the miracle of communion is transubstantiation. Does anybody know what that word means? What are we talking about when we're talking about transubstantiation? Does anybody Maybe know that? the wafer is actually the body of Christ and the, the juice or the wine is actually his blood. Exactly. In other words, the Catholic Church teaches that there is, a, there is a transformation of the literal bread and wine into the actual blood and body of Christ. In other words, they don't see that as symbolic. They see that as actual. And so when we talk about transubstantiation, that's what we're talking about here. That they changed. Uh, The prefix trans literally means change. Um, And it changed into the substance of the body and the blood of Christ. And Luther, of course, denied this change in Holy Communion. He challenged one of the central sacraments of the Catholic Church. Um, And this was one of its central miracles, by the way. This was huge in the Catholic Church. So you can imagine how this went over. Not well. And... um, and thereby one of the ways that human beings can achieve grace with God or salvation. And he said, no, this is not a way. Now, there was a counter to this beginning of the Reformation. The church initially, after he posted his 95 Theses, the church initially ignored Martin Luther, but Luther's ideas and variations of them, including Calvinism, quickly spread throughout all Europe. This was something that, again, once Luther posted these theses, the Reformation spread like wildfire throughout Europe, and eventually the Catholic Church asked Luther to recant or to disavow his writings, and this took place at the Diet of Worms, Um, and this was a council, again, held by the Holy Roman Emperor in the German city of Worms. And when Luther refused, and we're going to go into this more in detail, so I realize I'm just giving you a real general overview here. We'll go more into this. But when Luther refused to recant his position, he was excommunicated. He was expelled from the church. And the church's response to the threat from Luther and others during this period is called the Counter-Reformation, counter meaning against. So there was a Counter-Reformation that took place against Luther. Again, we'll talk more about that. But it didn't stop there. Remember that Luther posted these theses in what year? Anybody remember? 1517. 1517, correct. But in 1545, and this is a significant date for you to write down, the church opened what we call the Council of Trent. And they did this to deal specifically with the issues that Luther raised. Um, This did not go away. And so this was a Catholic council, the Council of Trent, an assembly of high officials in the church who met on and off, actually for about 18 years, truth be known. And they met principally in the northern Italian town of Trent for 25 sessions. So the Council of Trent was in Trent, Italy, and it was a meeting that took place over about 25 sessions. And there was uh, an outcome of this council. In other words, they formed five reaffirmations of the Catholic Church uh, as a result of this council. And again, this was to counter uh, what they supposed to be the heretical teachings of Luther. And let me give you what these five results of the Council of Trent are. These are the main doctrinal distinctives that came out of the Council of Trent. First of all, the council denied the Lutheran idea of justification by faith. They vehemently denied that. They affirmed, in other words, that the doctrine of merit, which allows human beings to redeem themselves through good works and not through the sacraments. Excuse me, and through the (coughs) sacraments. So they very much denied justification by faith they did affirm the doctrine of merit and that man is redeemed not only through good works but through the sacraments secondly they affirmed the existence of purgatory and the usefulness of prayer and indulgences in shortening a person's stay in purgatory so they reaffirmed the doctrine of purgatory that this was very much something they would not back up on number three They reaffirmed the belief in transubstantiation and the importance of all the seven sacraments. Now, we're going to get into all the seven sacraments. I'm going to tell you, hopefully, next week what those seven sacraments are. But they affirmed those, and they affirmed this change of the elements into the actual body and blood of Christ. Number four. They reaffirmed the authority of scripture and the teachings and traditions of the church. So they, th- this is the irony here, they, they affirm the authority of scripture, but they also affirm, with equal status the writings and the teachings of the church. And they did not see those to be secondary. And when we get into the seven sacraments that the Catholic Church holds to, we'll talk a little more about that. And then number five, they reaffirmed the necessity and correctness of religious art. Now, don't minimize this. Don't minimize this, write this down. They reaffirmed, you think, well, what does that have to do with anything? I'm glad you asked that question, I'm about to tell you. The Council of Trent reaffirmed the importance of religious art. Now, why is this important for us to consider Today? Why was it important for Luther to consider and other reformers? Because by doing this, what the Catholic Church was reaffirming was the usefulness of images within the church. How many of you have ever gone into a Catholic church? And what do you see there? Idols, man. You see statues of everybody. I think I should have a statue, Pastor Ron, and I in front. Don't you? No. Just kidding. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Don't don't go out of here and say, "Man, he is really." No. But you go into a Catholic church. When I walked into St. Peter's, I have never seen such ornate, ornamental, idolatrous, iconic things in all my life. I mean, I've got to believe that the worth of all of these things in there has to be close to. You know, $500 million at least. I mean, you see statues everywhere, you see icons everywhere. Art is huge in the Catholic Church. You'll see it, you know, what did Michelangelo paint on the Sistine Chapel, right? He painted, there's all kinds of images, there's all kinds of graphic writing on that. And you think, well, okay, so that's very ornate, but the promotion of these images. Um, Really promoted uh, the, the worship of idolatry. Okay, yet the Council of Trent decreed that these images are useful because they honor, they show honor to um, those who they represent. In other words, they're kind of prototypes of the images of those holy figures that they honor. And so, when you go into a Catholic church, you know you'll see all of their patron saints. They see you know you know saint andrew or saint whoever and then you'll see images of mary you'll see images of christ you'll see all kinds of images and the reason the catholic church felt this was important because they felt that these iconic figures were a way to visually reinforce the importance of these figures in their faith the the significance of what these holy figures depicted and they listed another reason they were useful because the miracles which god had performed by means of their saints And their examples before the eyes of the faithful are a way to give God thanks. So, in other words, to get to sainthood in the Catholic Church, you have to fulfill a certain criteria. So, in their mind, if you fulfilled that and you became a saint, they don't see, who are really the saints? Who are the saints? Believers. Believers, right? All believers are saints. That's not what the Catholic Church believes. The Catholic Church believes that saints are kind of semi-deified men and women who have done major miracles and major things within the church that bring them special glory and worthiness to be uh, worshipped or prayed to, you know, pray to their patron saints. And so the Catholic Church felt that, you know, the more of this artwork that we can get, the more of these images that we can promote before the people, the better understanding they're going to have of the significance of these people. And that's why when you walk into a Catholic church, you see so many icons. You see so many figurines and everything around. That's one of the things I love about walking into MacArthur's church. There's a pulpit and there's John MacArthur. You know, that, that's it. Um, we don't believe in those kinds of things. But anyway, it's uh, to encourage the saints so that they can, in some manner, imitate one of these saints that they can get excited through them to adore and to love God and to cultivate piety. And so you see that all of these images drip with human works. They drip with you know somehow man's ability to feel this piousness, to, to work his way into this kind of situation. Um, and so art becomes a very important distinctive of the Catholic Church. Now, there was a lot of violence uh, during this time the Reformation was a, a violent period in Europe There were many times when family members were often pitted against other family members. You can imagine how divisive this would have been um, Catholics and Protestants stood their ground each Considering the other was doing the devil's work. So there was a very uh, significant pushback and violent reaction to the Reformation um, the artists of this period were Michelangelo, uh, uh, Titian in Venice, Durer in Nuremberg, others. Um, they were uh, artists for, again, enshrining these um, saints, patron saints. Um, but now this art through the reformation started to be scrutinized in a new way and the catholic church was looking to see if art communicated the stories of the bible effectively and clearly in other words this is another thing that happened when the bible got back into the hands of the people are these saints that we've worshiped does this square with what the scriptures teach and so this was another very important issue so this idea of art is a lot more significant than what we often give it credit for. Um, The Protestants really, for the most part, lost the patronage of the church and their religious images. They came to see that this was heresy, that the worship of these people was idolatry, and so pretty much removed all of these figurines from the church. Uh, They were destroyed in many riots. And so we see that um, this continued... um, But the Reformation at this point could not be stopped. It continued to uh, grow and to spread throughout Western Europe. And uh, it began to change forever the way that man saw the Bible and saw his relationship to the Lord God and to our Savior Jesus Christ. You know, I would say that next to the apostolic era, the incarnation of Christ and Pentecost, this is probably the most critical and important time in church history that there ever was. Um, Undoubtedly, the Reformation was a movement sparked by God, where again, his word became preeminent, and we are still feeling the effects of the Reformation today. How might the Reformation be relevant to us today? You know, we celebrate 500 years and we think, well, that was, you know. But how, uh, what are some of the lingering effects? What are some of the things that, when you think of the Reformation and you think of the way the church is today, what are some of the things that come to mind? Having the Bible in English. Okay, having the Bible in English. Amen. You know, isn't it, it's a miracle that we can hold this book, isn't it? That we have this book in our hands and we can read it and learn it for ourselves. It's amazing. That wasn't the case much of church history. What else? Anything else? Can I say one thing quickly? Yep. I don't want to get us in the weeds. But, no, get us in the weeds. Um, our son in law, Isaias, attends. That's MacArthur's where the bass are. No, go ahead. What? Attends uh, MacArthur Seminary. Okay. And John MacArthur gave him to take on different trips uh, a Bible by uh, Wycliffe, and it's. On, you, I have a picture of the outer cover, 1551. And wow. I said, isn't it? aren't you worried the pages are going to break? He said, no printed on plot. Yeah, wow. Amazing. Yeah. I have a picture of any Yeah. It's very cool. Yeah. Yeah. So that ties right into the dates when you see some of the yeah. other dates. 1551, it was a very powerful with the invention of printing. Oh, very print. much so. Yeah, that was a huge turning point. Absolutely. Anybody else have any? Yes. Right. <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't hear you, Lauren. The, the scripture was given to us, not only do we have it in English, but we have it as a translation from the Greek, or at least supported by translations from the Greek instead of the interpretations so right. that the, we it, we exactly. uh, so two, were taught in the Pauline days. Right. Exactly. The Septuagint Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, so that, that's significant. Uh, very, you know, there was a lot of work done in the early days on translation. Um, you know, which we'll get into. I mean, the translation of the Bible and how that was communicated throughout Europe, and again, how uh, the literal translation of the Scripture spoke so um, adversely from what the Roman Catholic from what Roman Catholicism was teaching, and it was very blatant. You know, and it's amazing. Um, I, I forgot to say this too, and then I'll get to Jeremy. The Reformation. You know, we think of the Reformation, and we think primarily the catalyst for the Reformation began in Germany with Martin Luther, of course. But remember, the Reformation—there was a, a Swiss Reformation, there was an English Reformation. We see Reformation; we see the seeds of the Reformation starting in many places with Zwingli in, in Switzerland, and we're going to talk more about that as we get into these individual men. But what makes this so so hard to grasp is because there were a lot of things going on that all kind of came together. You know, certainly the German Reformation was the catalyst that really pushed this thing forward. But there was, there was reformation going on all through Europe. Um, and, and so translation work was being done. This wasn't just an isolated incident with Luther, uh, although he was certainly the most well-known, and rightly so, for really starting what we know as the Reformation. Yes? Yes, absolutely. And the, the solas, the five solas, is, mm-hmm. seem to be a very uh, predominant in the reform Christians and not the opinion like, of Christians, right? And so, what, right. would you say that there's still, I don't know, there's still like a lot that needs to be... Yeah. Yeah. In the five so yeah. it's, it's been 500 years but it seems yeah. like it's not yeah and, and you're right you're, you're very right about that Robert because there are many professing evangelicals today who would not hold to the five souls who would not see that the importance of that and again this was these were the central tenets of much of what Luther wrote in his 95 theses and I'm not going to take the time to read all 95 in class. But I want to encourage you guys for next week, go and read those. You can go online and just type in 95, and read what Luther posted. And you will see the five solas just jumping out at you. But you're exactly right. That's a very um, good comment, because in our contemporary church, um, the Reformation is still not even embraced in, in a way that's it's totally understood, even by many professing evangelicals. Certainly it is not by the Catholic Church. Pardon me. Yeah, right. Jeremy, do you have? A, oh, I thought you had your hand up. Uh, no, I didn't. But I will say that, uh, on the other hand, though, what what the Reformation did was it didn't just bring about the big thing was the religious freedom, right? And and changing the way the church it essentially took the power out of the clergy and and put it back in the hands of the believers, and that's had a staggering effect on the world in general. There's a there's a freedom that we have societal, yeah. civilization, uh, national freedoms that we might not have had, had the Catholic Church been allowed to continue its uh, dominance that it had at this time. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and you know, you see this, you don't see this, even for those who may not espouse the Reformation, you don't see it so much in our country, but for those of you that go to South America, or you go into areas of the world that are heavily Roman Catholic, and you really see the influence of Catholicism upon the people. And they're very steeped in traditionalism. And that can be very tough sometimes to, to reach because there is a very um, entrenched kind of belief on um, tradition. And, um, you know, we see it in certain areas here. Certainly, you know, the Roman Catholic Church is, is significant in the United States. But you go to South America, some of these countries where Roman Catholicism is... About 95 percent of what everybody believes, I think, uh, but that's changing too. You know, and and modern reformation is coming to many of those churches uh, through great efforts of reformed pastors who have been down teaching these pastors down there. So, God is at work. God is at work. Yes. And. I think uh, even affecting the Catholic Church a little bit uh, is the decentralization of the church itself. Yes. Oh, yes. You've got local churches. Yes. You've got power, even in the Catholic Church, whereas before it was all the hierarchy that they had. Yeah, that's true. 100%. That's true. Very true. That's a good point. I just have one question. What happened to all the churches and the apostles? Well, why did the Catholic Church put in his wife out those churches? Or how did, how did the uh, churches and the apostles yeah. well, in in church history, yeah. not survive? Good question. In, in church history, you'll see that the Catholic Church, and by the way, when we talk about Catholic, does anybody know what that word means? Universal. universal. The universal church. Really came into existence not long after the apostolic era. But for example, when you read about the seven churches of Revelation that you know Paul started, and they were literal churches that we read about in Revelation 2 and 3, those churches pretty much died out. They just didn't last. Um, sad to say. But the universal church took hold a lot of it was due to the persecution, the, the scattering of the saints through Asia Minor, which allowed a universal church to kind of take, gain a foothold, you know. And a lot of the universal church early on really espoused some of the political agendas of the day and, and you know, began to rise up. And, and you know, that, that's another era in church history, very significant, you know, between the apostolic age and the, the rise of the universal church. But... Um, We know, for example, like the seven churches of Revelation are no longer in existence today. Those churches are, you know, and, uh, but again, it doesn't mean that Christianity was snuffed out. It just means that God now is moving in a different way. But, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of reasons for why. Um, I think just, um, you know, persecution was certainly one main reason why the church struggled early on. in, in one sense, it got stronger. Persecution typically strengthens a church because, you know, the believers band together. But just the political and the um, social climates of the day, things changed. And it didn't take long for corruption to, to get into the church, did it? I mean, from the apostolic era, corruption entered real quick. Okay, well, I'm out of time by five minutes. I, I had about 13 pages of notes that I didn't get to today. <laughs> so, <95 laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, so next time we're going to talk more specifically about Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation and maybe get into some of these things. Um, I hope this is interesting. You know, I, I, I happen to love history, but I think it's important for us to understand, you know, how we got to where we are today. And uh, anyway, yes? Can I make one note? Yes. Just because of something I've been with, especially in the past, is that, um, like today, the Roman Catholic Church really looking at the heresies and stuff is kind for the same fundamental issue of just the whole council of God's word being proclaimed in its fullness and without anything added to it. Amen. It's really the core uh, problem. And it's the same in the Christian church. The yeah. church where they don't give the full counsel to add to it. Yep. And you know, I tend to have trouble with being angry at that sort of thing, <laughs> being angry people in that same situation, but you have to go at it with mercy and with gentleness and realize that it's just, uh, yeah. you know, ignorance. They don't, yeah. they don't know the difference. They yeah. don't understand because it's never been, never been taught. You have That's, to go to them with yeah. mercy and gentleness yeah. and explain it to yeah. them. Yeah. And, you know, the Catholic Church very much today still relies upon their priests to tell them everything they need to know. Even though they can open a Bible, they can go to any bookstore and buy a Bible and read a Bible, typically they don't. You know, they, they, they are entrenched in the tradition of it, and they just don't know. But that's true with many evangelicals, too, isn't it? That They don't know because they don't read. And they're, they're in a terrible situation of their false justification. Amen. False yeah. Yeah. Are we right? Well, let's pray, should we? Well, Father, thank you for your work in history. Lord, we realize that you have decreed your church to last through the ages, Lord, and have declared to us in your word that the very gates of hell will not prevail against it. And Lord, we know that hell and its fury has tried over the ages to destroy that which you have built up. And Lord, uh, we thank you for the many great men and women who stood as stalwarts in the faith, who defended truth who passed along to us through their conviction and through their blood, the truth of your word. And Lord, we thank you that you have preserved your word, that you have given it to us, that you have revealed it through the spirit of God. And Lord, we pray that we will always be those who will be willing to proclaim truth no matter what the cost and that we will continue to rely upon your holy word as the final authority for faith and life realizing, Lord, that there is no other sacred writing, there is no other inspired writing other than your blessed word. And so we ask now that you dismiss us with your grace, that we would uh, enjoy our time in worship to praise you anew, and Lord, to thank you for your goodness, kindness, grace, mercy, and love to us. And we pray that in Christ's name, amen. Well, thank you, you guys. Appreciate it. I don't know if this is...